Well, good morning, and hope you had a Merry Christmas, although I'm sure your Christmas looked quite different in this year of COVID. Many people had to change or adjust their Christmas traditions on account of the pandemic. That shouldn't trouble you too much because those traditions are, are just that. They're just traditions, and that there can be some good in them, but it's not like they're mandated in Scripture. If you could go back to the first Christmas when Christ was born, they wouldn't look like really anything we do today. The only Christmas tradition we can't forsake is worship. All other traditions may come and go, but worship must endure. This was the real purpose for Christmas. It's only right for Christians today to add their voices to that angel choir, which sang glory to God in the highest on the night of Christ's birth. But that first Christmas celebration was vastly different than it is today. And the days after the first Christmas were vastly different than they are today. Today, the days after Christmas are magical for children as they get to play with all their new toys. But for Christ and his family, the days after Christmas were anything but magical. If you know the scriptures, you know they were really more like a nightmare. That's because in the days after Christmas, the forces of darkness converged to try and end Christmas before it began by murdering Jesus. That's something I don't think we really think about or appreciate. This time of year, this Advent season, we focus on the coming of Jesus into the world, and rightly so. But do you ever ponder the days that followed his birth? Do you even know what took place in the days that followed his birth? Do you know about the nightmare after Christmas? You can open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 2, as we're going to find out. So we're making our way verse by verse through Matthew, and we just really began. But go to Matthew 2, starting in verse 13. In this whole chapter of Matthew 2, he gives us completely unique revelation in Scripture, meaning what's recorded here is recorded nowhere else. But it was given under inspiration for our instruction. Matthew is not simply chronicling the events that took place after Jesus was born. He records what happens to send a message. And that largely has to do with God's plans for this newborn Messiah. Matthew has a point in what he writes That fact is made very clear by the numerous times in which he connects the coming of Jesus to the fulfillment of prophecy. He's already done that several times in his gospel, just starting with the genealogy. He connects Jesus to the past. He's a descendant of David and Abraham. Then back in chapter 1, verse 22, we found that his virgin birth itself was fulfillment of a passage in Isaiah. Chapter 2, we just covered the visit of the Magi. We learned that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It turns out, according to Micah 5.12, that's where the Messiah was supposed to be born. So we already have this pattern in Matthew of prophecy fulfillment. Prophecy fulfillment. Jesus comes in fulfillment of, of all these expectations of the Messiah. And that pattern continues in the next three passages here in chapter 2, which feature three more connections between Jesus and the Old Testament. Three more times, verses 13 through 15, 16 through 18, and then 19 through 23. Matthew tells us how the coming of Jesus fulfilled Old Testament expectations. And Matthew is telling us this so as to paint a picture. He's making certain we know already that that Jesus really is the promised Messiah. But that's not all. He's also correcting our understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. In Christ's own day, the Jews had formed a very warped, skewed, and just wrong expectation of the Messiah. 
He was supposed to be a conquering king, but not a suffering servant. If only they had truly studied their own Old Testament, they would have found out he was supposed to be both. But as such, the Jews couldn't stomach the notion of a rejected Messiah and a despised Messiah. But in this passage, Matthew 2, 13, and the rest of the chapter, that's his point. The Messiah was going to be rejected and even despised. We just studied Matthew 2, 1 through 12, the visit of the Magi from the east. And that's like a, a glorious mountain peak where these Gentiles come from far away to worship the newborn king. Already God is drawing all men to himself through this Messiah as promised. But even in those verses, there are some hints that not everyone would be so happy with the coming of the newborn king. We got wind back in verse 3 that Herod was troubled by the news of the Messiah's coming. In verses 13 through 23 now, that trouble is amplified. We learn how Herod spilled innocent blood in an attempt to murder Jesus. And so this passage takes us from really the mountaintop of worship to the valley of despair. We wonder, how could this be? Didn't the angels announce peace on earth with the coming of Jesus? Where's the peace? Shouldn't everyone be excited that the Savior has come? Why would anyone want to harm the newborn king? How how could the Messiah, God's son, be hated? The, The Jews didn't understand this. You yourself might not understand this. But Matthew writes to fill you in, to let you know that it was actually always part of God's plan for the Messiah to be scorned and despised, rejected, and hated by men. There would be some who would come from afar to worship him. They would see him for who he really was. But there would be many others who would not and would stop at nothing to oppose him. And that continues to this day. There's been an age-old war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the coming of Christ only brought that conflict to a head. No doubt Christ is the victor. That doesn't stop Satan and evil men from opposing him every step of the way. And so we find while, although it's astonishing, that Jesus was opposed from his very birth. His coming was opposed and worked against from the very beginning. Already men were trying to kill him, the Messiah. Just, Just think about that. And what does that already say about his mission? But of course, all such attempts on his life would be vain and futile. No one would be able to lay a finger on the Messiah until his time had come. For although it was God's will for the Messiah to die, his life would not be taken from him. No one would kill him. He would lay down his own life of his own accord when the time had come. That time will come later, but for now, it's important for us to study and grasp something you you probably never have before, namely how the the opposition to Jesus after his birth speaks volumes to his person and his work. What Matthew tells us here is critical to understanding God's true plans for the Messiah, namely how he was to be despised and rejected. And so we want to understand this. There's three separate passages here, but kind of meant to be taken together. So that's what we're going to do. Back to back to back. Three passages all together as one. Just to uncover God's will for this newborn Messiah. Look at these three passages to uncover God's will 
for this new Messiah. And let's begin with the first in verses 13 through 15, which, which covers the Messiah's exile to Egypt. The Messiah's exile to Egypt. Verse 13 picks up right where the previous passage left off. Like we determined last week, it was not on the night of his birth, but several months later that these magi from the east showed up. They'd come to worship the newborn king. That was the purpose of their long trip. They came to honor him. And when they found the child in that house, they present their gifts. They fall to the ground and they worship him. And thinking about this from the perspective of Mary and Joseph, this had to be encouraging and comforting. So many wonderful things were being said about their child by all these people. And this visit of the Magi must have just only confirmed all these things. But that's about to change. Because it turns out not everyone was so happy that Jesus had come. And Mary and Joseph are about to get their first, but not last, taste of opposition concerning their son. An angel, it's most likely Gabriel, he had already spoken to Joseph once before in a dream, telling him, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. He had a message of good news. But now he shows up again, and it's an entirely different message for Joseph. And let's pick it up in verse 13. Speaking of the Magi, it says, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. This is an urgent message. The Magi themselves were warned in a dream down in verse 12 to get out of town. Now, Joseph is being warned that they too need to leave immediately. They must flee at once and go to Egypt. Why? Because Herod the king is going to try and kill Jesus. and He won't stop until he does. Herod was the current king of the Jews. And he could not stand any potential threat to his rule. Herod essentially had absolute power over the region, which meant there was no safe place for Jesus inside those borders. The only way they were going to escape Herod was to go into exile. They had to flee to nearby Egypt, which was outside of Herod's jurisdiction. And so they didn't waste any time. Verse 14 says, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Technically, this all could have taken place on the same night, but no sooner did the Magi leave that Mary and Joseph, that they get out of town. We get the impression that, that Joseph wakes up from the dream, wakes up Mary, gathers their things, and they just hit the road. They're not looking back. They're leaving while it's still night in the cover of darkness. The distance from Bethlehem to the Egyptian border was about 75 miles. Maybe double that if they're going to get to any hospitable settlement. And then triple that if they're going to make it all the way to Alexandria. This was all on foot, mind you. No, no cars in the ancient world with a newborn. If you have a newborn, how would you like to take a hundred mile trek by foot? The gifts of the Magi afforded them great wealth. So they probably purchased a beast of burden to carry their things. But still, this is not a fun vacation. This would have been a miserable and terrifying escape to Egypt. Why Egypt? Well, it's just the closest place they could lay low outside of Herod's reach. And Egypt had become a safe haven for the Jews. 
especially Alexandria. Alexander the Great made Alexandria, which was named after him, a sanctuary for the Jews. By AD 40, the historian Philo tells us there's about a million Jews living in Alexandria. It was back in the third century BC that it was Jews living in Alexandria who made the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. Now, we don't know if they made it to Alexandria or not. We know nothing else. We simply know that they left, they went down to Egypt, and they did escape Herod's uh, reign. It may make you wonder, though, like, couldn't God have protect, protected the life of Jesus some other way? Why, why make them flee to Egypt? Why not send a, a legion of angels just to protect the newborn Jesus? And God surely could have used any manner of supernatural means to protect his son Christ, but God is also apt to use ordinary means to do his will. Sometimes he just uses his people acting in faith to bring about his plans. And in this case, he called on Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, to, to lay down his life and go and protect this child, flee to Egypt. That said, though, there was another reason God used the ordinary means of having them flee to Egypt. That was in order to fulfill a prophecy. And that's verse 15. It says, speaking of Joseph and the family, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So here we see Matthew cluing us in on yet another fulfillment of prophecy by Jesus. But this one is different than the ones that came before. We are most used, used to uh, one-to-one prediction and fulfillment prophecy. That's where an Old Testament prophet makes some prediction about the future, and it comes literally and precisely true. Like we saw that back at the birthplace of Jesus. Micah 5.2, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and Jesus is literally born in Bethlehem. Very simple. But there is another type of prophetic fulfillment in Scripture known as typological fulfillment, and that's what Matthew cites here. Typology in Scripture is all about prophetic symbolism. This is where some person or object or event in the Old Testament has qualities that foreshadow some greater reality in the future. And these types were revealed in the Old Testament in shadow form. Their antitype is what they're called, or their fulfillment was not necessarily known in the Old Testament. It wasn't until New Testament authors under inspiration revealed them to be, to be so. If you want to learn more about typology, just read the book of Hebrews. It is chock full of typology. There's one quick example to help this make, make sense for you. Just take the Passover when you read about the Passover in the Old Testament, it's not a prophecy. It's an event. It was a historical event where the Jews, right before the Exodus, they took a lamb, they slaughtered it. They put the blood of that lamb over their doorpost as a sign so that God's wrath might pass over their house. They would be spared from the 10th plague in Egypt, which was the death of the firstborn. In the Old Testament, you read that Passover account there's really nothing explicitly prophetic about it. It's not telling us about the future. But the New Testament writers, under inspiration, make this connection, which, which now seems obvious to us, between Christ's sacrifice and that Passover. 
like 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us by the blood of the Lamb of God applied on our hearts. We are spared from God's wrath. We are saved. He passes over us. Overall, typology is a useful layer of God's prophetic revelation. It tells us much of God's masterful plan of redemption. You have to be careful with it. As a rule of thumb, we only accept the types that the New Testament authors point out because they were under the inspiration of the Spirit. But that is what we have Matthew doing here in this passage. He's quoting Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And he's applying it to Christ's time in Egypt. But you go back and read Hosea 11.1. 1, it, it's not talking about the Messiah. That, it's pretty clear. It's talking about national Israel. This is not a predictive prophecy. I'll read it for you. Hosea 11.1 1 says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Just a little bit of context. The book of Hosea is all about God's relationship with Israel, but that relationship is pictured in the marriage between Hosea and his wife, Gomer. Thing is, though, Gomer was unfaithful. She left Hosea. She went after other lovers. She became a prostitute and even gave birth to children in adultery. But after all of this, God tells Hosea to go to her brothel to buy her back to redeem her and restore her to a place of honor in their marriage. And God explains through the prophet how this was meant to be a living parable of God's relationship with Israel. God had set his love on Israel. He'd been nothing, he'd been like a, nothing but a faithful husband to Israel. But she went astray. She had gone after many other false gods and committed spiritual adultery. Israel had become enslaved to her passions. And God would discipline Israel for this, but but because of his everlasting love, he, he would not utterly forsake them. God would one day restore his bride and call her back. That's the basic gist of the book of Hosea. Hosea 11 fits right into this picture. It goes back and recalls the time when God first called Israel to himself. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. It recalls the Exodus when God called Israel to be his nation. A little bit of mixing of metaphors here. Now God is pictured as the father of Israel. Israel is God's son. But God cared for them and reared them, loved them, fed them. But they kept refusing God. They kept going after other gods. And God laments their unfaithfulness and declares, you're going to go back into exile. Not Egypt, this time Assyria, but the sword will come against them for their sin, but not forever. As is the case with all the Old Testament prophets, they always end on a note of hope. And so chapter 11, Hosea verse 8 says, or God says in the end, but how can I give you up, O Ephraim? God will restore them yet again. And we know that restoration will take place through the Messiah. Only the Messiah will, will restore the hearts of the people back to their God. So that's Hosea 11. Again, when you read it though, when you study it, it, it doesn't seem like it's talking about Jesus. And it's not. But by way of typology, it is. Because as Matthew and other New Testament writers 
tell us it was always God's plan for the Messiah to recapitulate or relive Israel's story. Israel itself, as a nation, was a type of the Christ. Only Jesus would succeed everywhere Israel failed. There are many clear points of correspondence between the life of Christ and the the story of Israel. Matthew's going to tell us about a few more later. As an example, Matthew chapter 4, we find Jesus in the wilderness, wandering, starving for 40 days. After, After that, he's tempted by the devil. And that recalls Israel's wandering at the exact same wilderness. That's where Jesus went. where They wandered for 40 years after they had failed their temptation. I mean, Christ will not fail his temptation. Also, we know that God always promised that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. And you read the Old Testament at first, you think it's going to be the collective seed of Abraham who will bring that promise to fulfillment. Israel. Then you learn pretty quick, it, it's not going to be Israel. They, they can't fulfill God's desires for them. They can't be a nation among nations leading other nations to God because they themselves have wayward hearts. They themselves don't even love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. No, the prophets make clear that, that a singular seed, the Messiah, will be the one to bring God's blessing to all the nations. And so Jesus comes as the ultimate seed of Abraham, the true Israelite who will bring God's salvation promises to fulfillment. And so we see some typology fulfilled in the New Testament. It's just making explicit this connection between the story of Israel and the life of Jesus. Even in this passage here, Matthew doesn't explicitly say this. We can leave it to an interesting thing to point out. But isn't it interesting how before Herod, Pharaoh issued an edict to slaughter all the newborn babies of the Hebrews, all the male children in Exodus 1 were to be killed. But one child was saved, delivered, and he himself would become Israel's deliverer, Moses. He would lead God's people in an exodus, delivering them from slavery to Egypt. That all happened. That all was real history. But here comes Jesus, spared now from a very similar edict, this time from Herod. For that, he goes down to Egypt. But Jesus is very much like a second Moses, a greater Moses. And his mission is to lead God's people on on a second exodus, a greater exodus, to deliver them not, not just from slavery to Rome, but slavery to sin. And as a way to signify that Jesus is this promised savior, God worked it out that he would be exiled to Egypt just so that later it might be said of him, out of Egypt, I called my son, that this connection would be just made known and revealed. Just as God set his love on Israel as his son and called him from Egypt to serve him. So God has set his love on on Christ, his, his greater son, and will call him from Egypt to one day lead his people on a final exodus, bringing them to the the final promised land, the heavenly promised land. And just as God protected and preserved Israel in all their wandering, so he will protect and preserve his chosen son, Christ. And so little does Herod know, but he has no chance at succeeding in killing this child. 
Speaking of, let, let's move on and cover that now. The second passage here, making the connection with, with Christ in the past. The Messiah's, the Messiah's escape from Bethlehem. Verses 16 through 18. The Messiah's escape from Bethlehem. After we learn about his exile into Egypt, now we learn about his escape from Bethlehem. Verse 16 tells us what was happening. Meanwhile, it says, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Here our worst fears and suspicions of Herod from before are sadly confirmed. Herod had instructed the Magi to report back to him after they found the Messiah you know, so that he could worship him too, right? Verse 8, we all already knew he had other intentions. Herod only wanted to destroy the child to eliminate any threat to his reign. And I'm sure he thought himself very clever, very shrewd in his ploy with the Magi. They didn't suspect a thing. They would just come right back to him and tell him the location of the child and he would go kill him. But Herod didn't count on God. Just like Psalm 2 says, though the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed, it's a vain thing. It's a futile effort to oppose the Lord and his anointed. So when Herod realized his plan had failed, he kind of sinks into this tailspin of rage. Enraged, thumao, it's a strong word in the Greek for wrath, and it's intensified. Very angry he became. He was livid because the Magi tricked him. They made him out to be a fool. Now, granted, it wasn't their intention to trick him. They were just, God redirected their plans, but that's not how Herod saw it. And he would not let this infraction go unpunished. If they wouldn't tell him the exact house, the location of the Messiah that was supposedly born, well, he's just going to take matters into his own hands to get the job done. And that's not a good thing. I mentioned last week, Herod was one of the most brutal and ruthless leaders of the ancient world in that time. I told you about some of his exploits last week. Just for one more, he had a son, Antipater, who was set up to actually take over for Herod when he died. He was going to become the next king. But Antipater started asserting himself a little too soon. And just just a little too soon, he's trying to act more like the king. And Herod didn't like that, so he had his son, Antipater, executed just five days before Herod himself died. So when I say he didn't tolerate any threat to his rule, that's what I mean. He didn't tolerate any threat to his rule. He was not going to allow even the potential of a rival king of the Jews to grow up. And so in his rage, he did the unthinkable. He sent his soldiers And they went and murdered all the male children in Bethlehem. And it says, all its vicinity, two years old and under. Jesus would not have been two at this point, but uh, given the time from the Magi. But likely Herod didn't want to take any chances, lest he had been tricked by the Magi a second time. Still, completely hardened and blinded by sin. It's the definition of being hardened and blinded by sin. Herod had these children slaughtered. Bethlehem was a small town at the time, maybe a thousand residents. So we're probably talking about a dozen 
boys who were killed in this nighttime raid, even if it were just one, it would have been a travesty. Though you don't want to, you can't imagine the terror of armed soldiers barging into your house at night, taking away your, your firstborn son or your child, and you just never see him again. This act of Herod is, again, the very definition of evil and injustice. That, that's not all that's taking place here. Because Matthew goes on to yet again make a connection to a prophetic fulfillment. And keep reading in verse 17. Matthew says, Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now this passage were introduced to another type. Just like the previous passage quoted Hosea 11.1. 1. Here he quotes Jeremiah 31.15. And this is not a fulfillment of predictive prophecy. This is a, a typological fulfillment. Now I'll explain that again. Jeremiah 31.15. You go back and read that. It's all about Israel being carried off to exile. Ramah was a little town about five miles north of Jerusalem. It's on the same road as Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Ramah. And it was located on the old border between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. When Judah was conquered by the Babylonians, they took all the Israelites, they, they herded them to Ramah, and there they were lined up, they were separated, and they were deported. They were exiled. So you can picture the city of Ramah. Families were being torn apart. Mothers would never see their sons again as they were snatched from them and just scattered all throughout the Babylonian Empire. And so Ramah was filled with bitter tears. Rachel is likewise pictured as weeping. Rachel, if you recall, was the favored wife of Jacob. And she's known as the mother of Israel. That's because she gave birth to Joseph himself was the father of Ephraim, and Israel is often just referred to as Ephraim. And Rachel also gave birth to Benjamin, who is part of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Rachel is seen as the representative mother of both Israel and Judah. Furthermore, Genesis 35, 19 says Rachel was buried on the way to Bethlehem, very close to Ramah. And so it's quite natural for the prophet Jeremiah to personify the grieving mothers of Israel as Rachel weeping for her children. It's like Rachel, the mother of Israel, is watching again as her ancestors are no more. Some are slaughtered. Others are being just separated from their families and carted off to exile. Meanwhile, from her grave, she can just sit and watch as she's being deprived of her children yet again. That's what the mothers of Israel would have felt in the exile. And this too is what the mothers of Bethlehem were feeling in this moment. And that's the parallel Matthew's drawing. And because of the slaughter of these infants in Bethlehem, he pictures Rachel very close by weeping once more. Her children are once again no more. And this time the culprit is not the Assyrians, not the Babylonians, but the Romans. And Rachel is seen as prefiguring or typifying the mothers of Bethlehem. 
But there's, there's more even still, because I believe that Matthew intends the astute Jew or the student of scripture to actually derive some hope from what he's saying here. And I'll have to explain that as well. You go back and read Jeremiah 31. And that one verse, verse 15, speaks of Rachel weeping for her children. But every other verse in that chapter is actually extremely hopeful and positive about the future. For example, Jeremiah 31 starts with God declaring his everlasting love for Israel. He will yet be their God. He says they'll find grace in the wilderness. Their cities will be rebuilt. At that time, Judah was facing exile. But despite their waywardness, God gave them hope. He says one day he'll bring them back. They'll stream back into the land. Yahweh will save his people. They'll shout for joy. He'll turn their mourning into rejoicing. It's a very hopeful chapter despite all that was going on. Verse 15 says, yes, Rachel's voice is heard weeping for her children who are presently being carried off to exile. But read the very next verse. Verse 16 in Jeremiah 31, it says, The Lord says to them, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. See, God follows this with words of hope for these children who were taken to exile. God sees the affliction of his people. He is disciplining them for a moment, but not forever. He says down in verse 20, Ephraim is his dear son. And God says he will surely have mercy on him. Days are coming, declares the Lord. Days are coming when the Lord will accomplish this. Days are coming, verse 31, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's Jeremiah 31, verse 31, just a few verses later. Yes, this is the same passage in the same context as the greatest new covenant promise in the Old Testament. God goes on to say thereafter how he will one day write his law on the hearts of his people. He will forgive their sin. He will remember their iniquities no more. And on that day, he will finally be their God And they will truly be his people. That day is coming. And on that day, there's no more need for weeping. Jeremiah goes on to say how a righteous branch will be the one to bring about that day. A chosen servant of God, the Messiah, he will bring this new covenant, this saving covenant. He will be the one to wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people. This then became Israel's last and ultimate hope as they were carried off to exile. So off to exile they went, weeping, left hoping in this Messiah. Well, Matthew, I believe, is, is for those who have eyes to see knowing the Old Testament, giving us that same hope, only it's no longer a hope. That righteous branch has come in Jesus and In Jesus, the weeping that began at the exile can finally end. In Matthew's own gospel, back in the genealogy, he already referenced the exile. He made the exile a huge turning point in Israel's history. At the exile, the Davidic line was dethroned. And that's when Rachel began weeping for her children. 
And it's a way those tears, you can see those tears reaching their zenith with these mothers of Bethlehem and, and the great evil they suffered. They too are weeping for their children. But here's the thing. Herod failed, right? Herod failed. He did not kill the Messiah. And because he failed, because the Messiah escaped, those tears can one day come to an end. What happened in Bethlehem was not right. And the world has been filled with many such evils as sin reigns. But you see, because Herod failed, we learn that God has, has finally sent the one who will right all these wrongs. God is finally beginning to set things right in this world through this child, Christ. Yes, their pain is real. And all your pain in life is real too. But hope comes in the morning. Jesus has come. He's the only one who can do something about all the wrong in this world. And Herod didn't stop him. We can grieve alongside the mothers of Bethlehem. But because the Messiah survived, salvation survived. And that too is our only hope. There's more we want to say here, but let's first cover the last passage. A third and final passage here in Matthew 2, connecting Jesus to the past. Third now, the Messiah's entrance to Nazareth. The Messiah's entrance to Nazareth. We saw his exile to Egypt, his escape from Bethlehem. Now his entrance to Nazareth. And I don't know if you noticed, but geography plays a big role in these three passages. Each passage features prophetic fulfillment concerning a specific locale. First, in Egypt. Second, in Bethlehem. And third now, in Nazareth. You've heard of Jesus being from Nazareth. How he got there. Why it mattered. We're about to find out. In the third passage. So now in verse 19. It says thereafter. But when Herod died. Behold an angel of the Lord. Appeared in a dream. To Joseph in Egypt. And said get up. Take the child and his mother. And go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life. Are dead. Learn that Christ's exile in Egypt. Didn't last very long. It may have been only for a matter of months. Because we know that Herod died not long after Jesus was born. At this time, Herod was about 70 years old. He was not planning on giving up his reign anytime soon. But his body was aging and wasting away and had different plans. The ancient historian Josephus tells us that Herod suffered from, quote, ulcerated entrails, foul breath, constant convulsions, and putrefied organs, end quote. Whatever disease that represents, it does not sound like a good way to go. But Herod got what he deserved, and the Lord took him out. And that's when the angel reappeared to Joseph in another dream. That angel told Joseph earlier in a dream, just get to Egypt and stay there until you hear further orders. That time had come, so the angel reappears to Joseph, telling them and their family to, it's now safe to come back to the promised land. Herod and his soldiers are no longer a threat. And so off they go. Verse 21 says, so Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea 
in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. You notice from before, the angel never told Joseph where to go in Israel. He just said, go back to the land of Israel. And so we think naturally Joseph was going to take his family back to Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born. They probably had relatives there. That's the house in which they were staying. And given everything marvelous that was being said about their child, you can't imagine they wanted to be close to the holy city, Jerusalem. They already had a lot of interactions at the temple concerning their son. They probably wanted to stay close to the holy city. But something changed their plans. Archelaus took over after Herod. He proved to be not that much better. After Herod died, the Romans divided his territory into three parts, and they gave it to his sons. And Archelaus was named what's called Ethnarch over Samaria, Judea, and Idumea. That meant he had, you know, total authority over Jerusalem and Bethlehem. But Archelaus proved to be just as wicked and cruel and ruthless as Herod. He's probably trying to live up to his father's reputation and thought, this is how you do things, right? Just with the sword. For example, one time there's, there's a, a small uprising in Jerusalem. And Archelaus had 3,000 Jewish pilgrims slaughtered and near the temple. But Archelaus was no Herod. The Romans found him incompetent. He himself was deposed in AD 6. But in the meantime, in the moment, Joseph knows Archelaus to be just as ruthless and brutal as his father. So he's afraid to live anywhere in his region, in Judea. God actually confirms his fears in a dream, one last dream, and God redirects his steps one last time. Again, in the middle of verse 22, it says, Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. We learn over in Luke chapter 1 that Mary was from Nazareth, and almost certainly Joseph was from Nazareth as well. That's where they were first betrothed. So when God warns him in a dream to not settle in Judea, It seems they both naturally concluded, well, I guess it's just time to go back home. It's time to go back to Nazareth. Nazareth was a sizable town about 55 miles north of Jerusalem in the region of Galilee. But it's what what might be called today a backwoods town. Nothing really special about Nazareth. I hope I don't offend too many people by saying this, but I kind of liken it to like Chico in California, or Lodi, or Blythe. I knew guys from those three towns in college, and they all hated growing up in those three towns. They're just kind of small, run down, according to them, crummy places to live. And that was kind of like Nazareth. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned in any early Jewish record. Nazareth was never worth talking about. It was never worth mentioning. So doesn't it strike you odd that the Messiah was raised there. Shouldn't that be different? Well, no, actually, that's the, that's the point. This was meant to be for a reason. And Matthew's going to tell us in a second. He goes on to say in verse 23, speaking of his, his residence in Nazareth, he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. And this ends the chapter. And we find here the third and final fulfillment formula in connection with Jesus. 
But this last one is different yet still. That's because what Matthew says here does not actually come from anywhere in the Old Testament. Nowhere does this phrase exist in the Old Testament. Never was it said that the Messiah was supposed to be a Nazarene. But don't let that disturb you because Matthew is not actually trying to quote scripture here. He indicates that he's not quoting scripture. First, you notice how he pluralizes prophets. Is the only place he does that. He speaks of the prophets, plural. Elsewhere, he always says the prophet because he's making a reference to a specific prophecy. But this is not a, that, this is not a quote. This is a general reference. Also, only here does Matthew introduce this statement with the Greek conjunction hati, which just means he's not trying to quote a specific prophet. He's just giving a general statement summarizing the teaching of the prophets, plural. And that teaching was that the Messiah will be despised. That is the last connection Matthew is making here. Listen, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah was supposed to be born. And if Jesus had been raised in Bethlehem, he would be known as not Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus of Bethlehem. And that by itself would have already carried overtones of Davidic majesty. That's the city of David. That's the royal city. That's the city of the future Messiah. So if he were known from then on as Jesus of Bethlehem, it's like having a royal calling card. Your first impression is, is a good one on people. Oh, you're from Bethlehem. But no, it was not meant to be. He would not be from Bethlehem. He would be known as Jesus of Nazareth. And back then, that had an entirely different effect. Again, Nazareth was like a podunk town. You know, today we have our derogatory terms for people from certain parts of the country, like redneck or hillbilly. And the social elites, the economic, political elites in the cities, you know how they despise people from that part of the country, right? You know that level of scorn and just despising they have for people uh, in that area. Well, that's how those in Jerusalem felt toward Jews in Galilee, and especially Nazareth. They just despised Jews from those regions. Do you remember what the disciple Nathaniel said when he first heard about Jesus? Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And according to John 146, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was his first response because he knew like nothing good comes out of Nazareth. How could it be the Messiah would come out of Nazareth? And so you see, for Jesus to be raised in Nazareth, for his actual birthplace to be obscured, for him to be known as Jesus the Nazarene was meant from the beginning for, for him to be despised. Instead of having the Davidic overtones as being Jesus the Bethlehemite, he would carry the scorn and the ridicule and the derision of being Jesus the Nazarene. But guess what? This was meant to be because the prophets actually did make clear that the Messiah would be despised. He was going to be rejected. And that's what Matthew's getting at. To be called a Nazarene in Matthew's day was to be despised. So Matthew is fittingly applying this epithet to describe the spirit of what the prophets said of the Messiah. 
And make no mistake, that's what they said of the Messiah. The Jews miss this connection, but it's loud and clear in the Old Testament when you know where to look. Psalm 22, verse 6, the Messiah would be a reproach of men and despised by the people. Daniel 9, 26, the Messiah would be cut off and have nothing. Isaiah 49, 7, the Messiah is called the despised one and the one abhorred by the nations. And then, of course, Isaiah 53, verse 3. Speaking of the Messiah, it says he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. It was always God's will that this chosen son, his beloved savior, would be despised and rejected by men. He would not be esteemed. But his rejection is to our benefit because it means our acceptance. It is good news that he would be called a Nazarene because he came for this purpose to bear our rejection, our sin and shame before God so that God might not despise and reject us. You should be thanking God each and every day that the Lamb of God was sent into the world as your substitute sacrifice, taking all of your guilt and shame for which God should reject you and despise you and cast you away. Jesus took all of that on himself that you might now be accepted by God. And that's what Jesus would do on the cross. He's speaking of that cross. The Jews could never accept the fact that the Messiah would die especially die on a cross. But even in these three passages, Matthew's already letting us know that when that day comes, it is God's doing. God is sending him to the cross on purpose. You see in these three passages how God is protecting his Messiah. He's using his sovereign power, even ordinary means, but he is preserving the steps of the Messiah. Herod and his soldiers, they brought the full force of his, his might against Jesus, but he couldn't lay a finger on the Messiah because he was under God's protection. His life would not end. No one could come against him and win. He's being protected by God's sovereign power. But what does that say, though, about the cross when he would die? Well, it only says that God must have wanted that to happen. God must have planned for that to happen because no man could actually win against God's anointed. On the surface, it looks like Pilate and the Jews and even Satan won by killing the Messiah. But you should know, and Matthew already tells us, that that Jesus only went to the cross because God willed it. That day was always destined to come, and it was meant to come for us. Like 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. You learn here already, Jesus was to be rejected, not just on the cross, but his whole life, he was to be rejected. And that was meant for your acceptance. And so the only question is, will you still reject Jesus? Or will you finally accept him? Your only hope is the one who conquered death, that you might avoid it eternally. And so I would urge you, not to be like Herod, who desperately was trying to keep Jesus out of his little kingdom to retain his little place of power. But that is futile. 
You don't need to keep Jesus out. You need Christ in your life as your Lord. You need to go to him and follow him because you need an exodus. You yourself need to be led on a final exodus to be delivered from your bondage to sin. And that only comes one way. You need a greater Moses. You need the Christ. He's the only one. Right now in this life, we're in the wilderness. Suffering wrong, it still goes on like the mothers of Bethlehem knew. We're we're still living in our wilderness, but only those who know Christ and follow him as their savior will pass from the wilderness of this life and enter that that final promised land. So I'd urge you to, to go to him and to follow him as your Lord and Savior and deliverer. And let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we, we thank you for your son, the Christ, that you've sent into the world to be our Savior and to be our, our second Moses, to, to usher in a, a second covenant, a new covenant, one which would actually save us. We need new hearts. Lord, we like Israel have gone astray and we've all turned to our own way. But you sent this Savior and it was always your plan that he would suffer in our place. He would die in our place. He would bear our sin in our place. That includes all of our shame, Lord, as we reflect on all the wrong we have done. We see Herod and his great evil, and I trust we've not sunk to that depths. but at the same time, Lord, who hears without guilt and shame and sin? We have offended our holy God, and we still do. How you and your perfect righteousness are only right to despise us and reject us, to cast us away from your, your perfect and holy presence. We have fallen far from your righteousness. But in in this greater plan of love, you sent Christ to to take it all himself, to drink that cup of wrath all by himself, all in our place. How much he suffered, not just on the cross, his whole life being rejected and despised by men, but how that culminated on the cross where in a sense, Lord, he was rejected by you and made sin that we might be made righteous. We need these truths in our mind. We need to reflect on what happened at Christmas, but also the days after that we might recall our great salvation, that we might respond rightly to it, which is simply by following this, this Christ, giving him our life each and every day, uh, living for him. And like the Magi, Lord, help us to continually bow down and, and worship this Savior, this Messiah who's come in the world, not just at Christmas, but, but daily may we present our, our hearts to him as our gift for the one who died for us. We thank you for your word, and it's, it's many layers, how, how deep and profound it is, and and revealing your plan for this world. Open our eyes to see more and to respond in worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.